Let's try again. Uh, Please turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. If you're visiting today, this is not how I normally sound. So, rest assured, I'm fighting a bit of cold, um, but that's okay. Um, We got this little thing here, and so that'll be good. And um, my voice will crack today. Every once in a while, I get excited when I'm preaching, um, and uh, so they'll be cracking today. I hope that's okay. We'll be drinking some water today. I hope that's okay. We have God's Word to consider today, and I am delighted in soul uh, to be able to bring that to you this morning. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, hear now the Word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as they, it had, he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said to him, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he's drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Our Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts to receive it and give us minds to understand it and a soul to delight in it, for it is your truth which reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his name and for his sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Kent Hughes tells the story that occurred on December 4th, 1976, when the world watched the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokasa I, crowned the emperor of the Central African Empire. The cost of this event was $25 million, or about one quarter of the small country's annual income. At 10.10 that morning, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of his imperial majesty as the procession began with eight of Bacosa's 29 children parading down the royal carpet, followed by Jean Bacosa II, heir to the throne, dressed in an admiral's uniform with a gold braid. Following Jean was Catherine, his favorite of his nine wives, wearing a gown costing $73,000, strewn with pearls that she herself had hand-picked. Finally, the emperor would arrive 
in a gold eagle imperial coach drawn by six Anglo-Norman horses. He emerged from the coach wearing a robe weighing 32 pounds, decorated with 785,000 pearls embroidered with golden thread. He marched to the massive gold eagle throne costing two and a half million dollars where he crowned himself with a crown topped with an 80 carat diamond. An impressive coronation, no doubt. His reign, however, was not as impressive. It was brutal and brief, lasting less than two years before he was overthrown as he testified to man's absurd desire to exalt himself. Well, Luke tells us of the entrance of a different sort of king, doesn't he? We find ourselves here in really like the the third section of Luke's gospel. It it might be helpful that you can uh, divide Luke's gospel into thirds as we've worked our way through it over these number of years. The first nine chapters really deals with our mind asking the question, who is Jesus laying out for us the evidence? Once that question is answered, really from chapter 10 through chapter 18, the, the, the Luke really deals with the will, asking, will we follow Jesus as he lays out for us over and over again? What is it to be his disciple? And now we come to the really the third section of Luke here, beginning in verse 28, where Luke does not deal with the mind. He does not do with the, deal with the will, but he deals with your heart. As showing you what Christ has come to do because he loves us. He will do it, of course, in Jerusalem during the Passover. Now, at this Passover, the, the expectations were at fever pitch. Uh, you need to know in Jerusalem this time, during the Passover festival, about three million pilgrims would gather into the city, swelling it to multiples and multiples of its normal size. I, I have reason to think that this one was particularly large, for the Lord has been teaching, has he not? Things like he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that he alone has this divine ability to forgive sins. And as he's getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem, we saw at the end of Luke 18, this blind man in Jericho, just 16 miles out of uh, uh, Jerusalem, and the blind man called out to Jesus. Remember, he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? He attributes to Jesus for the first time ever the messianic title of Son of David. Right? He's calling him the Messiah. It is for this reason that, that even Jesus' disciples tell this man to be quiet. Let's not get carried away. Let's not go too far. But he does not, he will not be quiet. And he calls out again, Son of David, O ultimate king, O eternal king, O final and everlasting king. And Jesus hears this man and says, Yes? What may I do for you? And then he spends just a little bit of time in Jericho, and by the time Jesus leaves, there is this massive tax rebate as Zacchaeus just starts giving away his money to the poor, approaching, coming closer and closer to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't tell us, but John does. It is at this time that he raises Lazarus from the dead. Of course, Lazarus died. Jesus shows up too late. It's four days late. Lazarus' sister comes and says, you're too late. Jesus says, listen, with me, it's never too late. And he goes to the tomb and he raises Lazarus from the dead in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. It'd be like if, if all of us gathered and we went over to the cemetery and someone was buried four days ago and Jesus says, undig that grave, open that coffin. And he calls the dead man out in front of us all. And the word began to spread over and over throughout the area, right? And and Jesus did miracle after miracle. And they all seen it. Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice, right? For, For all the mighty works they had seen. Right? They've witnessed this. They've seen it. Sometimes Jesus is, by well-meaning people, perhaps lined up with Muhammad and 
Buddha and Confucius, other religious leaders, as if they're all the same. Please understand, we have no historical account of any person doing the miraculous activities that Jesus Christ did over and over and over again in front of eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness. We even have the eyewitness account. There is no one like him in in history. He is utterly and totally unique. They've seen all these miracles. The expectation is high. John 11 tells us, Now the Passover was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem and they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another, what do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? Well, he will come to this feast as he approaches this city with electricity in the air. The prince is coming home. The Messiah approaches the holy city. The king is taking his throne. In fact, that's what this entire passage is about. It's about Jesus as king. In a moment, they'll be waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks and shouting their praise. That's what you did for a king who returns being victory uh, out in battle and he comes back home and you would greet him in the streets. And this is what they're doing for Jesus. And what's interesting, what's I think utterly unique here is that Jesus allows it. As you'll see in a moment, he even orchestrates it. That's unique because Jesus up to this point has always been telling people, be quiet. Okay, I'll do this for you, but don't tell anyone. Make sure you don't spread this around. Calm down, settle down. And he's always kind of disappearing when they, they want to do something with him and they want to exalt him. He says, no, no, no. And now all of a sudden something is totally different. Something has changed. Jesus is purposely creating a public display. And does not withdraw uh, as usual. In fact, he, he welcomes the attention. He invites it upon himself. This is his royal entrance into Jerusalem where Jesus finally publicly discloses without any doubt his true identity that he is the King of Kings, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord of Lords. And my goal this morning is simply to disclose that once again to our hearts, that the one we praise, the one we follow is indeed the King who has come for us. And if he is king, you would do well, and I would do well to submit everything to this king, to delight in this king above all, because you cannot understand Jesus unless you understand him as king. So consider this morning six truths about King Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the long-awaited king. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. I want you to note the control that Jesus has here. He knows where the colt is tied up. He knows where you'll find it. He knows its unridden state. He knows how to get it. Notice that he doesn't say, I hope you find it there. Right? Maybe it's still there. Right? He doesn't say, Lord willing, kind of you'll find the colt. Right? No. He says, this is how it's going to happen. And it happened just as he said he would. So, as you see in verse 32, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. You see, Jesus is arranging this entry. He is orchestrating it. Do not think that he's coming to Jerusalem and all these people kind of spontaneously come out and Jesus is thinking, wow, is this all for me? Uh, you know, oh, shucks. Well, okay, I'm speechless. This is, isn't this special, right? Okay, I'll get up there, right? No, Jesus is making sure that this happens for at least two reasons. One, he wants to bring conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And we will see this unequivocally throughout the entire chapter 20 in the coming weeks. The second, as I've already established, is he wants to publicly declare that he 
is the Messiah. And he does this by riding this colt. Now that's what Luke calls it, a colt. But the other Gospels tell us it's not a horse's colt, but it is a donkey's colt. The reason that is important is as Pastor uh, Elder Dave has shared with us this morning that there was a prophet named Zechariah who 500 years earlier was a prophet when the people of God had returned to Israel and they rebuilt the temple and they reinstituted the priesthood and God had given them prophets, but there was no king. And so Zechariah would tell, the king is coming. In fact, not any king, but the great king, the Messiah. And you will know him because he comes on the foal of a donkey. Look, here, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew's aware of this connection for he says in his gospel, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet and then goes on to quote Zechariah chapter 9. You see, Jesus is unequivocally identifying himself as the Messiah, as the long-awaited king. Now I want you to note a couple things about this verse. It says that the people of God should what? Rejoice. And rejoice how? Greatly. The people of God should shout aloud. Now, my friends, when is the last time you shouted aloud not at a sporting event? We need times of release, times of joy, times of shouting. Amen? Indeed. Right? That's one reason to come to church services. Now, it's not the primary reason. It's not even one of the top reasons. But one reason that you need to gather together with God's people every week is we need to celebrate that our Lord has risen. We need to rejoice greatly in our God. In fact, that is Jesus' goal. Please understand that this rejoicing is simply not the effect of His coming. It is the goal of His coming. In other words, Jesus does not simply want to remove from your heart the misery of your sin, though he wants to do that. He then wants to put in your heart where misery once was, the joy in his presence, that you would delight in your king, that he makes people leap for joy. Some of you are maybe come here and there's not a lot of joy in your heart. A lot of shouting going on in your soul. It may be because there is trouble in your life and hardship. I don't in any way want to minimize the burdens that some of you bear. But it is good for you sometimes to cast your gaze off your own troubles and to remind yourself of eternal realities. That you have a king. You need a king. You are made for this king, and he has come for you. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. The actual, he said, the actual record of kings is abysmal, full of tyranny, of course. And yet, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. He concludes by saying, for our spiritual nature will be served, deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Right, you can say you don't need a king, but you do, and you will crown one. Right, we're Americans, we don't have kings, right? But we do create royalty, whether it be athletes, or actors, or for some ungodly reason, politicians. Right, right, why would we do this? Well, we hunger for it. We must have our prince and princesses. We must have a king. We need someone to serve. We're made for someone other than ourselves. We must have a king. And and you could deny it, but it will be served. Deny a food, and it will gobble poison like pop stars. You'll have a king. And Jesus, I tell you, is the king you seek. In fact, he is the humble king. Consider secondly with me, Jesus, the humble king. Note verse 35. And they brought it 
to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So Jesus gets on this donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. Can you imagine for a moment what the conversation must have been like with him and his apostles? He's been walking to Jerusalem for months. He comes to Bethany two miles out. And he gathers his apostles together and says, Listen, guys, you know we're going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to walk in. I'm going to ride in. Imagine what they must have thought, right? That was exciting. Yes. Right, here we go. Right, it's go time. Right, because you could calm a storm, and, and you could raise the dead, and you could feed the thousands, and you could curse trees, and everybody's aware of it. I mean, the people are ready, Jesus. They've seen this, right? Let's go knock some Roman heads together. It's time, right? Jesus says, I'm riding into Jerusalem. And they must have said, yes. And Jesus says, okay, go get me a baby donkey. And you got to think the disciples are what? That is not how you win an election, right? Right? That is that is not how you inspire people. Recently, I, I, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. There was over in England a royal wedding. Some some prince got married. Uh, I don't uh, prince um, prince Harry or something like that. Prince Larry. I don't know. I don't know his name. This is some prince, right? So I'm close. It's, it's something like that. You know what I'm talking about? No, no one seems to know what I'm talking about. But there's a prince in England. Yeah. William. Prince William? It's, not, it's Larry. It's, it's not Larry. Okay. Prince William uh, got, got married. Right? And so this was, all over the, this was all over television, I believe. And my children watched it. Maybe you watched it. I purposely didn't watch it because I'm an American. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And, but, you know, so everyone's watching it. And... And I, I'm just going to imagine what it was like since I didn't see it. But I imagine there was parades through the streets of London, right? And I imagine there maybe there's the soldiers with the, the funny hats and, and you know, there, there's all the, the regal and the pomp and, 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 and I, I, I imagine maybe soldiers. And I, I'm guessing, but I imagine there's probably a carriage. Is there a carriage, Erica? Yeah, that's what I thought. There had to be. A, it's England. So a carriage and, and bringing the prince and his princess down through the streets of London. Now, could you imagine if instead of the prince and princess getting a carriage, they got in like a Pontiac or something, right? And not, not a new Pontiac, like an old rusted out Pontiac. And you can imagine like listening to the news, right? This is the BBC bringing you the royal wedding and here the, the prince and princess are getting in their Pontiac, right? And, and you would be thinking like, what? A, a Pontiac? Right? What? That's weird. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And he says, Go get me a baby donkey. I want to ride that into Jerusalem. I mean, I can't even I can't even read this story without thinking of the movie Shrek anymore. Right? I just want it's humbling, isn't it? In fact, Zechariah told us why. Why of all the things to identify the Messiah would it be a baby donkey? We'll look at this verse in Zechariah once again. You guys bring that up for me. You notice he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Look, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. You see, there's a paradox there. Jesus is the king. He's righteous. He has salvation. And yet he's, he's humble. He rides a donkey. He's mighty and authoritative and he's gentle and tender. Jesus says, I'm, I'm a king, but I am a different kind of king. Alexander the Great rode Bucephalus. Oxhead was his steed. El Cid, the 11th century conqueror, rode an Andalusian charger named Bebeca. Napoleon, his white stallion named Marengo. Jesus doesn't write anything like that. He says, I'm a, I'm a different kind of king. I'm a humble king. The high king of heaven comes to us lowly. He needs no 32 pound robe or 80 carat diamond or a war chariot. He does not come leading the captives through the city streets. He comes on a young donkey to free the captives. He comes gently and lowly. 
I'm meek and lowly and I'm a king, but I am no tyrant. I am a king, but I am no taskmaster. And Jesus, I think, rides into our own lives the same way. He comes to us with gentleness and humility. He does not come to crush us with his might. He says, a bruised reed, I will not break. A smoldering wick, if you're just hanging on, I will not snuff you out. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you know his gentleness? Have you, Christian, not experienced it over and over again when you, in a state of sin, are wooed back to Christ from a gentle Savior? Are you, therefore, gentle? Are you humble? Does your humility draw attention to Jesus? Or at work, are you, are you the one who's easily offended? Are you known at work as the Christian and who's also touchy? The Christian who feels entitled. What does that say about your God? Who came to you riding a donkey. You bring him glory by being blessed by his humility and being transformed by it. One of the things we should do as a church is pray for Hamilton Baptist Church, as we seek to be a healthy, biblically saturated church, that would not make us a proud church. You see the irony there. The more we dive deeper into God's Word and say, God, we mold us into your image, the more we might be tempted to be puffed up and look down upon our other brothers and sisters. Pray that we would be a humble people. That He would, he would humble us. He who is humble. Christ is abounding in gentleness and humility. But here's the thing. He's not modest. He's humble, but never modest. As you consider third, Jesus is the praiseworthy king. Again, look at verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, and they sent Jesus on it. Evidently, it was unfit to, for him to ride without a saddle. And the, they did the best they could. They had their cloaks. They tied it around this donkey. And then this very touching detail that you might miss. It's almost like athletes hosting a coach after winning a championship. They, well, Luke tells us, they lift Jesus up and they put him upon his mount. And evidently others begin to follow this example, placing their cloaks on the ground before him. As you see in verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, every step that this donkey takes, people would be flinging their garments on the ground as a way to honor their king with this red carpet treatment. John will tell us that they also would cut down palm branches and place them down before him, just as do the saints in heaven with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what they did for their king. In fact, the crowds begin to swell as more and more begin to join this parade. As we see in verse 37, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This is the moment they've been waiting for centuries. And what euphoria must have been amongst this parade. The prophets were true. The king has come. What would it have been like to have been there when the king of kings rides into the holy city amidst such honor? But it's just not their cloaks and their cult. They praised him with their voices as well. Verse 37 says, with a loud voice. Content is given in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now I want you to understand this is not simply random praise. This is not like the, you and I might say amen or hallelujah. They are quoting from Psalm 118 as you see here on the screen. Save us we pray, O Lord. That phrase save us, O Lord, in their language is the word Hosanna. 
We know the other Gospels say they were shouting Hosanna. They were quoting Psalm 118 verse 25. Luke tells us they quoted verse 26 as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, we bless you from the house of the Lord. They, they praised him and they blessed him from Psalm 118. What's unique about this is Psalm 118 is the messianic psalm that they are to praise their Messiah when he comes. The son of David when he arrives. The Messiah who had fixed the world. And so they praise Him. They attribute to Him these truths in their praise, just as you and I do. Right? You know, we didn't meet in a classroom today. You are not getting a lecture today. I know how to lecture. Just ask my children. This is a sermon. We have sung today. Because we don't simply believe in Jesus We worship Jesus. If you're visiting with us today, perhaps you've noticed this. We have prayed to Him. And we sing to Him. And we profess our love to Him and confess our sin to Him and express our need of Him. And we remind ourselves of what He's done and what He will do. And we ascribe to Him honor and glory and might and power and mercy. We find comfort in His work. We celebrate His victory over sin and death for us. We even sung about that. We do this because we want to worship Jesus. Christian Do you worship Christ? I appreciate how Pastor Josh began our service this morning. Do you set your mind on Jesus? You would do well to occasionally put down the cell phone, turn off the television, and just think about who he is and what he's done. Let that nurture your heart allow him to excite you help him to help let him help you to worship him i'm i'm so excited for you women who are going to retreat together in a couple weeks that you must get away from all the kind of craziness of your life simply because you want to worship king jesus and know him better what blessings will be there for you we need to join the parade we need to worship our king he is worthy of it Don't be like those who refused to give it to him. As we see forth, Jesus is the divine king. Consider verse 39. There were others in the crowd, weren't there? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Pharisees did not like what they were hearing. They eventually got so fed up with it, they shouted to Jesus, Do you hear what they're saying? You understand what they're saying about you. They're calling you the Messiah. Rebuke them. He will not. For the praise that they offer, which is due to God alone, Jesus will receive. He says as much in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me note three quick observations about these two verses. First, when you follow Jesus... Others will try to stop you. You're going to find that out. The more you follow Jesus, the more bold you are about Jesus. Others, who see, there are people out there who refuse to follow Jesus, but don't want anybody else to do it either. I remember in 2015, the Marine who was court-martialed because she would not remove a Bible verse from her computer screen. In 2016, I remember the uh, Air Force officer who was under uh, official investigation simply because he kept a Bible on his desk. Second, notice the experts were wrong. Those who studied scripture their whole life missed the Messiah. You know who was right? It was the common, uneducated masses. I say this in particular to you who are students in public school. You who will one day or are already in public college. I guarantee along your way, you will encounter experts who will say no offense to your parents and your upbringing and your grandparents, but Jesus is not God. People don't get up from the dead. People are not born of a virgin and they will have all their arguments to persuade you that what you have been taught is false. And I just want to point out to you that in this passage, and it seems like everywhere else in the gospel, it is the educated that miss the Messiah. Right? The professors in Jesus' day missed him. 
It is the common, the poor, and the uneducated who saw him truly. So do not let these individuals buffet your faith. Third, and the most important, Jesus is very clearly claiming to be divine. Jesus does not say, you're right, people shouldn't be worshiping me, getting carried away. (laughs) uh, Couldn't be more opposite, right? He says, listen, if these people don't worship me, the very rocks will cry out. Be like some crazy children's movie, right? The rocks start singing. In other words, Jesus says, I will be praised one way or another. If these people won't do it, creation will because I deserve it. I mean, what kind of man says, if you don't praise me, the rocks will start? You understand the boldness of that statement. He's claiming to be divine. There are people that you will encounter, and they're usually the experts, right, who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And it just tells you, they haven't read a page of Scripture. seems page after page, he's doing it. Here is just another of many examples that Jesus is very clearly saying he is God. And so, you know, people say, I want Jesus to be my friend. I want Jesus to be my teacher. But, but I don't want to submit my life to him. I don't want him to be Lord. No, he's claiming to be Lord. You can't have him as your teacher. You can't have him as your servant. You can't have him as your friend. You can't have him as your guide until he is your king. You see, he is, he is, as I said, humble, but not modest. He is gentle and meek, but he is very confident. Right, with regard to other people, he's always loving and tender. But with regard to himself, there's no modesty at all. You know, he won't slip into Jerusalem. He's forcing the issue. He's coming there and he's saying, listen, you got two options. You either praise me or you oppose me. There's no other option. You can crown me or you can kill me, but there is no middle ground. Right? That's the only option available to us. If you consider the claims of Jesus, you will either despise him as some egomaniac or you will bow your knee to him as the king of kings, right? There's no other option. He will not be admired. He will rule or be despised. It says the rocks will praise me if, if you do not. Fifth, consider that Jesus is the compassionate king. Luke alone records the next four verses. A startling picture of our Lord. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Bethpage, where he was, is two miles out of Jerusalem. Bethpage is on the Mount of Olives. So in order to get Jerusalem, he would have to go down, as you see in verse 37, down into the Kidron Valley, and then back up into Jerusalem. And so as the donkey bore our Lord amidst the cheers of the people, the, the panorama of Jerusalem meets his eyes. He sees the city and he begins to weep. And these are not quiet tears like he shed at Lazarus' tomb. The Greek tells us these are loud. This is deep sobbing. Right? For the people, this entry was triumphant. It was a triumphal entry. For, for, in many ways, for Jesus, it was tearful. A tearful entry. We're told why in verse 42. Saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They don't know what brings peace. Instead, he approaches a rebellious city, a city that will resist the rule he offers. He clearly longs to receive them, but they will not have him. He even explained earlier in Luke's gospel back in chapter 13, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. He would gather them. He would care for them. He would save them, but they would refuse him. What's startling to that to me is that he's clearly not indifferent about this. He's like a parent watching his child choose destruction and folly and he mourns over the city's rejection. 
weeps over it even. And, and in light of his tears, the, the rest of verse 42 is, is a mystery to me. For he, he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So here we're told why they reject the king's terms of peace. They're hidden from them. There's a great mystery here, isn't there? That he has this great grief for those who reject them. Oh, that you knew the terms of peace. But in the very same breath, he says, God has hidden these things from them. His weeping reminds me of Second Peter. God is not willing that any should perish. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. The hiddenness reminds me of Romans 11. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Please understand the reason why you and I pray for people to be saved is we believe only God is able to open their eyes as he has opened yours. Jesus mourns that this city, the people of it, have been forsaken. He would say as much in Matthew 23, your house is desolate, your house is forsaken. But he not only mourns the rejection, he mourns the destruction it will bring, as you see in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Right? They will refuse this king's peace, close their eyes to his visitation, or they would therefore face the wrath of another king. For 40 years later, on April 9th, 70 AD, Rome, just as Jesus prophesied, would set up a wall around Jerusalem, five mile long embankment at the Passover, trapping all the pilgrims in the, inside, starving them for the next five months until September, the entire city was leveled, including the temple, the wall torn down, nothing remaining standing, not one stone set upon another. This city is destroyed. It reminds me, I don't know if you remember our study in Leviticus this summer, chapter 26, God warning his people of the curses of covenant um, failure, covenant disobedience. If you abandon me, if you turn your back upon me, Trouble and trial will come. And it seems like it happens over and over and over again. Of course, this destruction, like all the rest in Scripture, is simply a preview of the eternal destruction to come. There is an eternal destruction. The Bible calls it hell. And my fear is that some of you, if you do not bow your knee to King Jesus, will face his judgment forever will encounter his wrath. I want you to see that this Savior weeps over such a reality. He takes no delight in it. Do you know the terms of peace? You know why this passage is in the Bible? I don't think it's to tell us about Jerusalem's doom, perhaps part of the reason it's there. I think it's to declare how eager Jesus is to make peace with you. The terms are simple. It's unconditional surrender. There's no negotiating, no bargaining. It is simply laying down your rebellion of self-rule, admit your defeat, and surrender your entire life to the lordship of King Jesus. That's how you have peace. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, you understand the weeping of our Lord should be modeled in our own life. He loves, listen to me, he loves those who reject him. Do you? When is the last time you've wept over the condition of the lost? I say to my own guilt as well. Right, we shed tears over our own trouble, but does that not just tell us how self-absorbed we are? We should love deeply. So often that when people reject our Messiah and they choose another way, we're filled with anger, not sorrow. 
You notice Jesus shows us a different way, a better way. To love them as Christ has loved you. To sacrifice and care for those around you in compassion. That they too may accept the peace from this redeeming king. As we consider sixth and last this morning. Jesus is the redeeming king. Turn back to verse 30 if you will. He says go into the village in front of you. Where on entering it you will find a colt tied. On which no one has ever sat. I don't want to make too much of this, but the, I don't know, you saw the prophecy in Zechariah. Zechariah said, he'll come on a, on a young donkey, on the full of a donkey. Never said anything about it being unridden, right? What, why, why does he say, I want to sit on something that's never been ridden? Now, I'm not an expert, okay? I, I, it's been a long time since I've been on a horse. I never cared to be, get on another one, to be perfectly honest. Right? Yeah, that's right. But what happens when you get on a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden? Right? The the donkey turn around and say, where to? Right? I love having you back there. No. It hates it. It's terrified. It tries to throw you. The horse, the donkey, must be, as they say, broken before it can be ridden. Yet Jesus gets on a unridden cult rides it through narrow city streets accompanied by a screaming crowd throwing cloaks and waving palm branches and I could only be reminded of he who calmed the sea clearly must have calmed this animal you know why animals are afraid of humans you know why they need to be broken because they're smart George Woodfield once said, do you know why when you get near animals, they bark and run away? Because they know you have a quarrel with their master. He gets on the colt. Does he break it? No. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He heals it of its fear. Things become what they should be under his hand. Right, this young, unridden colt, fearless in this crowd when Jesus is in the saddle. Oh, when Jesus is in control. I want you to see this. We talk about he's king, he's king, he's king, he's king. Yes, but he does not come to break you. He comes to heal you. He, he is king. He demands allegiance from you. Not so that he can abuse you. Not so that he can use you. Not so that he can take from you. But that he can heal you as he will heal this entire world. One day when he returns, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He redeems. And his redemption is not simply he'll forgive you of sin and take you to heaven one day. He will redeem all of creation. He will heal the world. You see, when we rebelled, the world got broken and as beautiful and wonderful as it is, it is simply a shadow of what it one day will be. And when our king returns, Everything will blossom. Everything will return to the way it was made to be. You shall go out, the prophet said, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That is the redemption to come. But he already has redeemed us now. Right? There's a redemption to come of all the world, but the redemption has begun now as he has brought peace with us, with God. You know, kings would ride donkeys back in the ancient days, but they wouldn't ride them into war. David rode a donkey, for instance. But he would ride a donkey to proclaim peace. See, Jesus, in riding a donkey, he's come not to make war, but he's come to bring peace between us and heaven. Is that not what they cry out? In verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that not remind you of the angelic song in which this gospel began? As our Lord was born in Bethlehem. 
the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And now these disciples, they join their voices with the angelic praise and say, let there be peace. Do you have peace with this king? Christ has brought peace. Christian, please understand, he is not angry with you. He's not sick of you. He's not against you. He does not oppose you. There is peace. Now, sometimes there are troubles in your life. Sometimes your faith is refined. Sometimes we reap what we sow. There are consequences. But there is peace between you and God if you belong to Christ. You know how he made it? Well, this one who would ride into Jerusalem amidst messianic praise six days later will be forced outside of Jerusalem to die as a blasphemous imposter. And what a strange coronation that would be. A crown of thorns upon his brow, a lifting up upon a cross, a sign above his head, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. No one was shouting then. At least not their praise. Certainly they are hurling their insults, calling out their slurs. You see, the Pharisees got what they wanted, didn't they? No one was shouting Hosanna to the crucified. No one was praising him as he hangs on the cross. Yet what was it that he said? If they are silent, even the rocks will cry out. Is that not why we read in Scripture, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The stone cracks. The ground quakes at the death of their creator as they pray tribute to his redeeming work when all else were silent. He laid down his life to make peace between you and God, to save you from that coming judgment. Friends, if you are here and you are not in Christ, gladly submit your whole life to King Jesus. And for those of us who are, my Christian brothers and sisters, will you draw your eyes back to verse 38? I think it would be fitting for us to join this praise. And so as we end our time together, will you say with me out loud the words that we see, the words of praise here in verse 38. Let's read this together as we end. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That is our heart's cry, Father. Blessed be King Jesus, for he has brought us peace and glorified himself. Help us to be ambassadors of peace as we seek to bring you glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.